All right, I think we're going to get started here. So Mike McCurdy tells me that I get to do my own introduction, which means that there is no introduction. Um, my name is Nirav Shah. I know many of you, almost all of you in the audience, and, uh, and I'm one of the pulmonary critical care faculty. Um, I was blessed to hear from Mike on Tuesday that I was going to give this lecture on Thursday, um, and, and I was so excited about it. And, and so here we are today uh, talking about something that I think is really important, and I think that it might be a little bit basic, but I think it's important to kind of think about it. So I, I titled the talk Revisiting the Basics, but I put a question mark behind it because a lot of times this is the basics of, of kind of mechanical ventilation, but it's stuff that we forget about when we're taking care of patients at the bedside and we rely a lot on our respiratory therapists to do this. And for the most part, they do a great job. But if if, uh, if we at the bedside, the, the fellows and the faculty, aren't aware of some of the, the nuances of the ventilator and what we can do to adjust the ventilator to, to treat people um, more effectively, I think that we're doing a disservice. And, and so the reality is, is that almost anyone in this room could stand up here and give this talk, and, and they're definitely experts, more experts than, than I am here as well. So please feel free to interrupt and, and make this as interactive as possible. So in terms of introduction, we wouldn't have a lecture about mechanical ventilation if we didn't have respiratory failure, right? So with respiratory failure, I think the key is, is that we know that we're unable to ventilate a patient and we're unable to oxygenate a patient. And for that reason, um, we have to kind of think about what we're going to do for this patient to, to take care of them. So there are two types of respiratory failure. There's hypoxic respiratory failure, type 1, where your PaO2 is less than 60. Your PCO2 can be normal or low. And then there's hypercapnic respiratory failure, type 2 respiratory failure, and that's where you have an elevated PCO2. And our strategies for how we take care of these patients might be different based on whether they're type 1 respiratory failure or type 2 respiratory failure. In terms of the pathophysiology of hypoxic respiratory failure, this is a review of, of kind of the medical school stuff, so um, holding true to the title of revisiting the basics. VQ mismatch is the most common cause, a decrease in ventilation or an increase in perfusion to a normally ventilated lung. In the ICU, in the medical ICU, we see a lot of shunt, which is persistence of hypoxemia despite 100% oxygen therapy. Um, pneumonia, atelectasis, pulmonary edema, the prototypical one being ARDS, right? And on rounds, so I'm in the ICU right now, which is partly why I, I, I was thinking, oh, I'm, I'm going to have to leave the, the MICU to come down here and give this talk. And, and on rounds, when we're walking from room to room, we're seeing a lot of patients with this type of hypoxic respiratory failure, and we have to think about different treatment strategies for how we're going to take care of them. And that's a whole other talk in and of itself about how we're handling ARDS um, and, and what we're doing now. But just to plug kind of our own, own research that we're doing, we have a patient right now that's got ARDS in the, in the ICU, and, um, and they're, on the, they're on our cooling protocol for our IRB protocol to try and see if we can affect change by doing other things besides ventilator management. But this talk today is going to focus specifically on ventilator management. In terms of the pathophysiology of hypercapnic respiratory failure, this should give all of you guys in the audience a little bit of a shiver when we start talking about equations like minute ventilation equaling alveolar ventilation and dead space ventilation. Um, I, I couldn't talk about this without putting a slide like this up because Dr. Todd was, was one of my mentors and, and loves physiology and does such a great job of teaching it. But basically, with hypercapnic respiratory failure, if your alveolar ventilation increases, your CO2 is going to go down. And if your alveolar ventilation decreases, your CO2 is going to go up. And the only way alveolar ventilation decreases is if your minute ventilation decreases or your dead space increases. So in pure hypercapnic respiratory failure, the hypoxemia is going to be easily corrected with oxygen. So this schematic right here is kind of a simplified version of, of what we basically see. We see two types of respiratory failure. We see hypoxemic respiratory failure, and we see hypercapnic respiratory failure. There are different things that will result in this, neuromuscular disorders, obviously, um, increased airways resist resistance, uh, decreased compliance of the respiratory system, like we see in ARDS. And, and all of these things are going to contribute to an increased work of breathing and us needing to intervene on a patient. So what do we do for a patient who has respiratory failure and that we're unable to ventilate or unable to oxygenate? Well, we've got to treat them, right? And, and the first is, is that we try and reverse the cause. But if we can't reverse the cause, we're going to end up using a treatment modality that has its own risks, right? We try and put people on the ventilator to allow our antibiotics to work, to allow the underlying etiology to be resolved. 
And so I think it's important that we think about it and we make sure that we're not causing more harm with our ventilator than we are doing good with our ventilator. So just a little bit of trivia. Anyone know what this is a picture of? So we're talking about positive pressure ventilation. I'll give you a hint, it's a virus. So this is polio. So this is the polio virus. And the reason why there's a picture of the polio virus on the screen is because really in the 1950s in Europe and, and in, in the US, this has been, this, this virus kind of led to the, to the utilization of the positive pressure ventilators that were being used in the ORs to be then used in the ICUs. So initially we didn't have positive pressure ventilators, right? We had medical students that were bagging patients through tracheostomies and reducing mortality from 80% down to 20% just with that amount of kind of manual labor, if you will. But it took so much manual labor that they were like, this is not sustainable. And so we ended up developing positive pressure ventilation in our ICUs. So the idea behind positive pressure ventilation is twofold. One is to reduce the work of breathing for a patient. And the second is to restore adequate gas, ex gas exchange. When you walk into our ICU, I think that every single time you walk in to see your patients, and what I want our fellows to do in the morning and that I do in the morning when I get there is just do a quick walk around the ICU and to see if we are using positive pressure ventilation, are we indeed reducing a patient's work of breathing and how are we doing with their gas exchange? The key is, is that we're probably much better at restoring adequate gas exchange than we are at reducing work of breathing. And the amount of ventilator dyssynchrony that I see in our MICU in the mornings when you walk through is, is pretty astounding, right? We, we see a lot of patients that are, for whatever reason, um, we're, we're decreasing their sedation in the morning, trying to assess them for extubation, um, all things that we're supposed to be doing. But then you actually see the physiology of what's happening and what the waveforms look like. And so um, today we're going to focus on this a little bit. Um, so if we're going to go down the route of positive pressure ventilation, we're going to talk about invasive and non-invasive, right? So um, we're not really focusing on non-invasive today, but when you think about it, non-invasive is your CPAP, BiPAP, and then there is still an element today of what used to be the iron lung, which is called biphasic cuirass ventilation, that's a vest basically that helps on inspiration and expiration. Um, CPAP and BiPAP, and then invasive and either endotracheal tube or tracheostomy. And then we have a lot of different modes of mechanical ventilation, and we'll talk about that a little bit, but not, not in too much detail here today, because really what I want to focus on is what we're seeing on the ventilator screen that may or may not be related to the mode that the patient is on. So when we think about the different modes of mechanical ventilation, we have volume modes, we have pressure modes, hybrid modes, and then they're not so novel anymore, but, but novel modes, right? So things like APRV, the oscillator, which we don't use in our adult population, um, neurally activated uh, ventilatory assist, so, so some things that are out there that are kind of newer. But for the most part, I think all of us in this room use volume modes, pressure modes, or this is called a hybrid mode, but it's really, a pre in my mind, it's really a pressure mode, pressure-regulated volume control. And our MICU, typically, most patients are on PRVC. And then in our SICU, Sam, what are most of the patients on in the SICU? Uh, AC pressure control? SIMV is, is, is pretty common in the SICU. Um, and you know, any mode of mechanical ventilation can look like another mode of mechanical ventilation. And the reality is, is that it's, it's how we use these modes and what we're using them for and making sure that in certain patient populations we're controlling the variable that we want to control, right? So, for example, in an ARDS patient, there's plenty of literature that says that we should be aiming for a tidal volume of 6 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight. That doesn't mean that you, that, that you have to use volume control, right? You can use PRVC to target that, that tidal volume. You can use pressure control and use a pressure that gets you to that tidal volume. But if your compliance of your lung is changing, if you have someone on a pressure mode, or even, you know, kind of, not necessarily PRVC, but in, definitely in a pressure control mode, your lung tidal volume is gonna change as the compliance changes of the, of the um, respiratory system. So it's important to kind of keep track of it. You can make any mode look like another mode by having them, having them just change the parameters as long as the compliance has stayed the same. So what are our goals of mechanical ventilation? Well, 
fairly straightforward, right? We have goals of ventilation, goals of oxygenation, and then some additional goals for ARDS. So in terms of ventilation, we want an acceptable PCO2 level, we want an acceptable pH level, we want a plateau pressure or an alveolar distending pressure that's less than 30, and we want to minimize auto-peep or dynamic hyperinflation or breath stacking, right? In terms of goals of oxygenation, we want an oxygen saturation that's above 88%, an FiO2 to prevent oxygen toxicity that's less than 60%, and an optimal delivery of oxygen. For ARDS, we have additional goals, right? We want the tidal volume to be six cc's per kilo of ideal body weight. We also want to use a conservative fluid strategy. And, and these things are all things that we try and put together to say, are we achieving our goal? So I'll give you an example of a patient that I just saw in the ICU who was on, um, she's on a pressure control mode of mechanical ventilation, which isn't, I guess that's not the important part, but her FiO2, was 60% and her PEEP was 10 last night when I left the ICU. This morning when I came in, her FiO2 was 60% and her PEEP was 14 when I left the ICU, or when I came into the ICU this morning. And I looked at the gases and her PaO2 when the change was made was 70. Her oxygen saturation was 89%. So we basically went from a PEEP of 10 to a PEEP of 14 for, an, or for a PaO2 that was 70 and an oxygen saturation that was 89%. When we looked at her hemodynamics, her pressure requirement went up overnight. And that was the change that was made. And so I was teaching the team that, and we looked at all of the gases over the last 24 hours, that we basically made a change to get her sat to look good so that the bedside doc would feel like, oh yeah, her SAT is now 91% or 92%, her PaO2 is now 95, and we made these changes at the expense of going up on her presser requirement. When our goal is a SAT greater than 88%, and, and if I ask you guys why, you know, everyone can answer that the oxygen hemoglobin dissociation curve says that below 88%, it drops steeply, and above 88%, you're, in, you're on the flatter portion of the curve, and that if you increase the PaO2 from 60 all the way up to 3,000, you're not gonna get any better than 100% set. And if you think about your oxygen delivery equation, and you think about the fact that it's cardiac output times hemoglobin times your SAT, times your constant, your, your fudge factor for your hemoglobin, plus your PaO2 times 0 0.003, by increasing her PaO2 from 60 to 90, or 70 to 90, and by changing her SAT from 88 to 94%, you really did nothing for oxygen delivery. So we made changes and we affected the, the hemodynamics without really getting a benefit of the ventilator changes that we made overnight. The other big thing in terms of goals of mechanical ventilation is that we wanna avoid ventilator-induced lung injury. And I think that that's a really, really important point. And when we talk about the things that we cause with the ventilator, we have volume trauma, which I think we're, we're all cognizant of, that we want to keep the tidal volume at 6 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight. We even might go lower than that if our plateau pressure is, um, is high so that we can avoid barotrauma. We don't want to get micro or macro barotrauma. We keep the peep at a level to avoid atelectasis from you know, repetitive closing of, of airways. We keep the oxygen level less than 60%, which is theoretical. We don't, we don't really know for sure what level of oxygen is safe, but we know that a higher level of oxygen can cause oxygen toxicity. And then we want to avoid biotrauma. So the dyssynchrony that we see with the ventilator, where the patient and the ventilator are, are, are not in sync, where they're fighting each other, results in a, re a release of systemic cytokines that then cause injury to other organ systems. And we want to try and avoid that. So I think we all know what our goals of mechanical ventilation are in terms of ventilation, oxygenation, our additional goals for ARDS. I think we all know what the five different types of ventilator-induced lung injury are, but when you try and put it all together at the bedside, how do we do this effectively? Basically, it really only takes walking by the bedside for about 30 seconds, not even, glancing at the waveforms to see whether the waveforms look good, whether the patient's synchronous with the ventilator, and then making changes accordingly if not. So last night on sign-out rounds, Neil Christopher was the, the fellow for the day and Dominique was there at night, and 
we saw a patient that wasn't on my team and, and they had a, a peak at the end, so they were pulling down on the pressure waveform and I said, you could probably go in there and just mess around with one or two of the parameters that we don't typically think about and change this patient's comfort on the ventilator and avoid some of this lung injury that we're seeing with the ventilator. And they did that and the result was great. So not to pick on um, the emergency medicine folks, but this is, I think, something that us as program directors, Mike, Mike and I, have thought about as, as people that are training pulmonary critical care and critical care trainees, that we probably don't provide enough mechanical ventilation education for how much patients, how much people take care of patients that are on mechanical ventilation. And this study was published in the emergency medicine literature in 2015. And basically, they just asked people, how many hours of lecture on mechanical ventilation did you get in the last year? And you can see here that almost 80% of the people had zero to three hours of mechanical ventilation lecture in the last year. And then when you t talk about how often do you care for mechanically ventilated patients in the ED, frequently greater than 10 patients per month is a quarter. Often, four to nine patients per month is about 40%. So that's kind of scary that they're taking care of up to, up to or greater than 10 patients per month, 60 to 70% of the people, with one to two hours or three hours of lecture on mechanical ventilation. And I'll tell you that, that the important part of this is that me standing here talking to you guys for an hour is not going to be what's going to teach you how to handle this stuff at the bedside. It's going to be actually going to the bedside, seeing a patient that's, in that's got dyssynchrony and, and messing around with the ventilator until we get good vent settings that this patient is comfortable on. So here we go. Definitions. So what is control? When we're talking about mechanical ventilation, what is control? Anybody? So limits, okay. So control, if I told you that it was volume, pressure, or dual, control is going to be how a breath is delivered, how the ventilator knows what kind of flow they're going to give to target to which mode that the patient's in, right? Volume, pressure, or dual. Cycling, so what's cycling? Good. What determines... In, when inspiration starts, right? So that could be based on time, that could be based on volume, or that could be based on flow. And then what about triggering? Helen, you're batting 100 here. What's, what's triggering? What starts? Inspiration, right? So, sorry, cycling is what determines, uh, thank you, you just corrected me, right? Cycling is what determines the switch from inspiration to expiration. And then triggering is what starts inspiration. So triggering can be by time, pressure, or flow. So when we have breaths, they can be mandatory breaths, assisted breaths, or spontaneous breaths. And this is where SIMV and AC can differ, right? So AC, volume control, AC pressure control, CMV, these are all ways of giving breaths. But if I told you that, that and, and Drager used to call AC CMV by convention, and that really wasn't what it was doing, right? It was really AC. And what that means is that if you're in CMV mode, pure, true CMV mode, if you set the ventilator at 14 breaths and you want to breathe 18, Doug, how many breaths do you get? You get 14, and that wasn't comfortable for patients, right? So AC is where you can get, if you have the ventilator set at 14, and the patient wants to breathe anything above that, they'll get that, right? And what kind of preset will they get? Will, will, if you say, say it's a volume mode, AC, VC, will they get the volume that you've set, or will they get the volume that they want? they'll get the volume set. And that's the difference between SIMV and AC, right? So in SIMV, they're gonna, for the breaths that are extra breaths above what you've set, they're gonna get either whatever they want, or with, if you add pressure support into it, or P, you could add PRVC into it, you can make it AC volume control. Those extra breaths, you can decide how you wanna do it with SIMV, they're gonna get whatever they want, or if you've added support, they're gonna get those, that support for those extra breaths. In terms of flow pattern, there are a few different flow patterns. And this is important because patients tend to not like some of the flow patterns that we used to choose because our ventilators, for example, the, the um, ventilators, that, the servo eyes used to not give you a choice if you're in volume control as to what kind of flow pattern you got. So with flow patterns, you have sinusoidal, you have decelerating, 
you have constant, and you have accelerating. And it used to be that the servos would automatically give you constant flow if you set them to a volume control mode, which is why we tend, tended to put people on PRVC a lot more. Now you can actually pick a decelerating mode of ventilation. So Carl, I know you don't have a mic, but can you tell me if there's a benefit between AC decelerating versus PRVC? There's a theoretical one that uh, I think PRVC is really this name. It's really a volume targeted pressure control. And it, it's a hybrid, but it's basically an early closed loop ventilation where if a scalp rep calculates compliance based on the compliance, targets a pressure control to hit a um, tidal volume. And based on the tidal volume of the last breath, it'll change. Right. So the theoretical advantage is that you can use the least amount of pressure to target the tidal volume that you have, right? right. But the, the assumption is, is that if somebody is spontaneously breathing and they have a lot of breath and breath variability, it's going to have to be recalculated. Right. So, so I would argue that now that we have a servo eye that can do decelerating flow on volume control, that there are some disadvantages of using PRVC that aren't there in volume control necessarily, with a theoretical advantage that I'm not sure is, is realized in our patient population on a minute-to-minute, hour-to-hour basis. However, our default in the MICU is still PRVC for most of our patients. So I think it's something we should look at. I think that we should say, you know, there are certain patient populations, for example, patients that have COPD, where PRVC may not be the best mode of mechanical ventilation. In addition, patients that are agitated, PRVC is definitely not a good mode of mechanical ventilation because as it senses that the pressure that the patient is, is generating is high, the ventilator is going to give less support. And all that's going to do is put you in a, in a circle of where your patient's getting more and more agitated, right? So there are a couple of places where I think PRVC is, is overused without kind of understanding that we should switch those patients to VC decelerating. Yeah? But I think there's a mode that's underutilized. Uh, which is? Support, which is essentially something similar, but instead of a volume-targeted pressure control, it's a pressure support. So it's like putting somebody on pressure support but guaranteeing that their tidal volume is going to be yeah, I, I like volume support as well. I think the volume support's a good a good mode. In fact, I know when I'm coming on service after you, um, because a lot of patients are on volume support, and so I know that there, Carl has been here, um, is, is kind of written all over the rooms. But I think it's underutilized too, because I don't think people are comfortable with it, because they don't know. Our, our default is pressure support. And just like our default is PRVC, I think that we should evaluate that on an ongoing basis to see maybe there is a better mode that we can use in, in terms of some of our ICU patients in the, IC, in the medical ICU. We get a fair number of COPD patients that, that maybe VC decelerating is a, is a better um, option for those patients, right? So looking at the flow pattern is important, and we're going we're gonna to look at that. But this is a, a pictorial kind of um, uh, rendition here of a decelerating flow wave pattern, a square wave flow pattern, and a sinusoidal flow wave pattern. And we typically, and patients typically, like decelerating flow um, rather than square wave flow. And, and that's because the pressure waveform on a decelerating flow pattern is going to be constant, as opposed to a pressure waveform on a square wave pattern, which is going to be accelerating. And we'll talk about that a little bit. And then mode or breath pattern, um, that's where you get into, is it mandatory? Is it AC? Is it IMV? Is it pressure support? And IMV used to be really, really popular because they thought that you could wean patients um, easier from IMV, right? That, that if you set them at 14, and then as you decrease the set rate, that they would start taking more and more spontaneous breaths, and you could wean a patient. And that's been proven to not be true, right? So, so typically now, I think that, um, and Sam, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's basically being used just like an AC mode in, in the SICU. Yeah, it, what happens is they put on some pressure for him. Personally, I would just put them on AC, but I haven't been able to change the culture of our RTs. So they put them on SNA and we press the fortification, put them on PRC. Yeah. I don't think anything happens. So, yeah, so, so um, the culture of, the, you bring up a good point, the culture of the respiratory therapist. I think that the, the reality is, is that people default to what they're comfortable with and what, what they think is, is used across the board in a lot of different places, right? But I think that all of us should critically look at 
what is the culture of the, the respiratory therapists and, wh and what they're putting patients on, and what are the things that we can do as intensivists taking care of these patients to try and put on a better mode of mechanical ventilation for the patient so that we avoid the ventilator-induced lung injury that we're seeing um, theoretically. So definitions, scalars. What's a scalar? So when we're talking about kind of flow or, or pressure, what's a scalar? It's flow versus time, or pressure versus time, or volume versus time. And what if we did flow versus, um, if we did volume versus pressure, what is that called? That's called a loop, right? So when we do PFTs, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at, at, at um, flow volume loops, or pressure volume loops, or pressure, um, um, or, or um, yeah, pressure volume or flow volume loops versus scalars, which is what we're looking at on the ventilator. So being able to identify what your scalars are when you go by a room and you do a quick walk around the unit, what you see on the screen is typically the scalar. So on the servos, you see pressure at the top in yellow, flow in the middle in green, and volume at the bottom that's light blue. And, and so looking at those waveforms can help identify a lot of different things. And so this is an example of a scalar, and this is an example of a flow volume loop. And I'll tell you that there's definitely a role for our loops as well in our ICU, but typically I don't think I've ever seen someone walk in the room and, and push the button on the ventilators to look at the loops. But all of us, I think, look at the scalars on a daily basis. So what is the role of ventilator waveforms in mechanically ventilated patients. The first is to rec recognize a real-time change in a patient's condition. So, so if you are standing outside of the room rounding and a patient starts to develop bronchospasm, you're gonna be able to see that. You won't be able to hear it from outside of the room, right? Because you need to go to the bedside and listen to the patient's chest. But you'll be able to see that the waveform changed. So you can identify a real-time change in a patient's condition. In addition, it helps us optimize ventilator settings and treatments, determine effectiveness of our ventilator settings, detect adverse events of mechanical ventilation. So say someone has a kink DT tube or something like that, you should be able to recognize that um, on your, on your um, waveforms. And then minimize the risk of ventilator-induced complications. And the biggest one there is looking for things like auto-peep or looking at things like um, dyssynchrony. And, and I think that all these things are important as we look at waveforms. So what are our types of waveforms? So as I mentioned, by convention usually, um, in the order here, we have pressure, flow, and volume, and they look different depending on what settings you use, right? So if you look at these, um, what kind of settings do you think are in this patient right here? Do you think that, what kind of mode of mechanical ventilation is this right here? Anybody? So volume control, or SIMV with volume control, right? So this is a cis control volume control with a square wave flow pattern. And when, you're, when your flow is square, your pressure is going to ramp up, right? And then your volume delivered is the area under the curve. And then what about over here? So that's also volume modes, like volume control if you have a decelerating flow or pressure control, or PRVC, or SIMV if your second setting is PRVC or pressure control. So I think this is a little bit important to just focus on, and that's that just by looking at your waveforms, you may not know entirely what mode of mechanical ventilation a patient is in, because some modes can look like other modes, right? So if you have volume control with a decelerating flow, that could look like pressure control, where your pressure is set at a, at a constant. The other thing is, is that as you put people on pressure support and volume support, you will get different, your patient will determine what their, A, their breath rate is, right, what their respiratory rate is, and what their time for how they're going to cycle a breath is. So if you trigger, so this, in, in this case um, here, if you say that someone's on pressure support, you, you probably wouldn't say that that's true on, on the start here, right, because you don't see where the breath is actually triggered, um, where there's a negative deflection. But, Pressure support and volume support can also look like this. Typically, in a spontaneously breathing patient, you will see in pressure support more of a sinusoidal um, flow pattern in some of your patients as well. So looking at the pressure waveform, we already talked about the fact that if you have square wave flow, so constant flow, that pressure is going to accelerate. And if you have decelerating flow, you're going to get a constant pressure here. So what are some things that you can see on the pressure waveform that could help diagnose different things? What can you diagnose? So what, Definitely some air trapping, airway obstruction, a response to bronchodilators, 
what a patient's respiratory mechanics are, if they're having active exhalation, what kind of breath they're getting. Importantly, what's the plateau pressure or what the peak inspiratory pressure is, if they're getting CPAP or PEEP, whether they're synchronous or disynchronous, and if they're triggering the ventilator. All these are things that you can tell just by looking at a pressure waveform. So in this case, when you look at this pressure waveform schematic, you can see that there's a set amount of PEEP, and that's set here. So say you set it at five. This would be five right here on the pressure waveform. There's no effort here in terms of triggering the breath. If, this is a, if you set the trigger to be pressure, there's no negative deflection here. So this is a, a breath that's given by the ventilator, as opposed to this breath right here, which is the trigger that you see. And this is important because we are setting the trigger sensitivity. We are determining with the ventilator, it's one of the settings that a lot of us don't focus on, but what triggers the ventilator, whether it's pressure or whether it's flow. And if this trigger is too sensitive, you're going to get breaths being delivered that you didn't want to be delivered, right? And if it's not sensitive enough, the patient's going to be trying to get a breath, and the ventilator won't give them a breath unless they're due for it based on the time. So our pressure waveform is kind of, I think, most famously known for helping us calculate in our ARDS patients what our plateau pressure is, right? So which letter up here correlates with plateau pressure? Anybody? So if F is your inspiratory hold at the end of inspiration, right? So here's inspiration. At the end of inspiration, you do an inspiratory hold. And F is your inspiratory hold. Then C is going to be your plateau pressure, right? What is B? If C is your plateau pressure, what is B? Your peak inspiratory pressure, right? So A is going to be your inspiratory time. B is going to be your peak inspiratory pressure. C is going to be your plateau pressure. A and D are going to be, if you add A and D to, if you add, I'm sorry, if you add this dark red with this D here, what is that going to be? That's, that's the area under the curve of your pressure, right? That's your alveolar descending pressure. The area under the curve is going to give you your alveolar descending pressure um, in terms of, or I, this area, this area, this is going to be all of your pressure, so mean airway pressure. Um, and A and D together will be your alveolar descending pressure. So it's important to be able to look at the waveform and see what you're going to be able to tell from that. And we'll get into an example of that in a little bit. Flow waveforms, so an, exam an example again of, of constant flow or decelerating flow, can tell you a lot of things. And we probably rely on our flow waveform the most when we're looking at our, our ventilator. Most importantly, I think one of the things that it tells you is whether this patient is air trapping. We'll talk about that. It also can tell you whether you have obstructive lung disease or airway obstruction, whether a patient's responding to bronchodilators, whether they're actively exhaling against um, the ventilator circuit, what kind of breath they're getting, how their inspiratory flow is, whether they're synchronous, and whether they're triggering. Because remember I told you that we set the triggering for our patients. So we set whether they trigger by pressure or by flow. So when you look at this, why do we typically like decelerating flow rather than constant flow? And this doesn't show up very well on, on the screen. But if you look at this patient right here with constant flow, this is inspiration and this is expiration. You look here that as their flow is constant, their pressure is accelerating. And then as their flow stops, the pressure goes down to zero. As opposed to the patient with decelerating flow, where pressure stays constant. So one of the things that you'll see here is that flow is high, comes down to zero, pressure stays constant. And if you look at peak pressure, your peak pressure in your constant flow is going to be higher than in your um, decelerating flow. And here's a picture of that. Um, this is volume control versus pressure control. And here you can see that your tidal volume, so this was, I took this picture before, um, before we had uh, um, the ability and volume control to, to go to a decelerating mode. But if you look here at the tidal volume, 500 and 500. And if you look at the peak pressure, it's 29 with constant flow and 26. So you get the same amount of tidal volume, but 
at a higher peak pressure. And, and is that really that important? Maybe or maybe not. But in terms of patient comfort, it really is a lot more comfortable for a patient to have a decelerating flow and a constant pressure rather than the other way around. In addition, you can tell about airway obstruction. So here you can see that the flow is prolonged in the graph that's darker, and then in the dotted line, the flow is shorter. So in some patients that have airway obstruction um, or, or obstructive lung disease, you're going to want to give them a higher flow initially so that they get a higher peak flow, so that they get their breath in faster at the tidal volume that you've set, so that they have a prolonged period to expire that breath, right? So if you have someone that you've set at um, a respiratory rate of 20, that means that their inspiratory plus expiratory time, they're going to get three seconds per breath. And if you give them a higher flow and their breath goes in in 0.8 seconds, that gives them 2.2 seconds to breathe out their breath. And in someone with obstructive lung disease, that's really important, right? Because they have airway collapse, and it's going to take them longer to breathe their, their tidal volume out. And if you don't do that, in a lot of these patients, you're going to end up getting breath stacking. So you can also tell auto-peep or dynamic hyperinflation or intrinsic peep just by looking at the waveform. It doesn't quantify it for you, but it tells you that, yes, there, there appears to be auto-peep. And that's that here, your waveform doesn't go to baseline, right? So you have your next breath starting before your pr previous breath, you've expired all of the air. It'll tell you a bronchodilator response. So in here, you have a person with a prolonged expiratory phase of their flow volume loop. They get a bronchodilator, and then it looks like their flow their expiratory flow kind of normalizes a little bit. So you can tell whether someone's responding or not responding to bronchodilators. The volume waveform, so this is probably the most ignored waveform of, of, the, uh, of the ventilator circuit. People don't typically look at the volume waveform, but you can still tell whether someone has air trapping. You can tell whether someone has a leak. So if the, if the um, volume waveform uh, looks abnormal, and I'll show you an example of that, you can tell whether someone's leak is present. You can tell if someone ha is getting a certain amount of tidal volume, whether they're dyssynchronous with the ventilator or have active exhalation. And so here's an example of a patient where the next breath is starting before their volume is coming down to baseline. And so this is an example of where you can look at your volume waveform and say that this person has, um, that this person has auto peep. In addition, if you look here, where this should be kind of coming, this dotted line you can barely see, gives you the nice kind of curve that you want. Before that, your breath kind of cuts off. What would this indicate in this one? That maybe your inspiratory time isn't long enough, that the patient needs a little bit longer time for inspiration because their, breath, their volume is getting cut off when the ventilator is telling them that it, their breath is over. So here's an example where there's a, this red line where there's basically no flow for a period of time on the ventilator. What would this tell you? This would tell you that maybe the eye time is too long, that you're giving this person too long to get their breath in and they don't need that long to get their breath in. So the eye time is something that we don't really focus on when we ask the RT what ventilator settings did they set, but it's something that's important for us to keep in mind and there are different ways of calculating it based on different modes of mechanical ventilation. So for PRVC, you directly set the eye time, right? When you go onto the ventilator settings and you push the, the, the more settings button, there's a place where you can adjust the eye time. Pressure support, when does pressure support, how do you determine the eye time and pressure support? How does the patient, does the patient decide what their eye time is? So the patient doesn't decide what their eye time is necessarily all by themselves, right? We're putting in a parameter to help them, and that's flow. We're saying that at this percent of peak flow, cut off their breath, right? So the ventilator senses that the patient wants a breath. The ventilator gives them help. If you set the pressure support at 10, they get 10 centimeters of water pressure to help them get that breath. They get a tidal volume, and then when they reach 25 or 50 percent of flow, peak flow, the ventilator says, okay, that, that breath is now cut off, right? So we do set a parameter, which I don't think a lot of us think about, that our patients with COPD might need an adjustment for their, for their flow for when to cut a breath off. For pressure control, you directly set it. For volume control, if you have decelerating flow, it's a, it's a fairly, um, I, I would say complex because we're not mathematicians, but it's really not that complex, actually. It's just that your slope is different, right? So you have flow at one point, flow at a second point, and then two times the tidal volume. If it's square wave, your flow is constant, so it's tidal volume divided by flow. 
So what is trigger sensitivity? We've talked about that briefly, and that's how easy it is it for the patient to trigger the ventilator to deliver a breath. And it can be flow or pressure, and increased sensitivity is usually preferable, because you can imagine if you want to get a breath in and you try and, and, and trigger the ventilator and it doesn't give you a breath, you're going to get highly agitated, right? So increased sensitivity is usually preferable. The smaller the flow or negative pressure, the more sensitive the circuit. However, high sensitivity, so if you make it too high, you're going to get false triggering or auto-triggering, and that's not ideal. What about rise time? So we talked about this briefly in the, in the last uh, mechanical, ventilator, mechanical ventilation lecture I gave to you guys. But rise time is the speed of the rise of pressure. So pressure control in PRVC modes or flow in volume control modes. And very short rise times may be more uncomfortable for the patient. So basically, it's determining the slope of the line to get to the maximum of what you've set. So in pressure, if you set the pressure at 25, it's determining how fast you go from the PEEP to the pressure of 25. In flow, it determines how fast you get to your, your flow that you've set. So the rise time as you prolong it has other kind of issues with it as well, but a short rise time is typically not comfortable for a patient. And this study in, in respiratory care in July 2010 looked at the effect of inspiratory rise time on triggering workload during pressure support, and they used a lung model study. And basically, what it was looking at was that, can we reduce the patient's inspiratory work? Can we reduce the risk for VILI? And what they found was that a short eye time decreased the inspiratory workload. And that's important because I think that when we put people on the ventilator, we try and say it may not be that comfortable for them to have a short rise time, but we don't typically play around with that setting. And the patient that I was talking about yesterday that had that peak at the end, all we did was change their rise time, and that little peak at the end where they were working against the ventilator went away, and it was a nice square wave pressure and a nice decelerating wave for flow. So a longer rise time will result in a lower tidal volume being delivered in pressure control or a higher pressure being required to deliver a set tidal volume. So if you elongate the, the, the time here, you can see in pressure you're going to decrease the amount of volume that you're going to give because you're going to have less time that they're going to be at their, their set pressure. Um, and then in flow, for, for volume modes, you're going to need a higher pressure to give them the amount of, to get them to the tidal volume that you've set. So a long rise time is not ideal. Inspiratory time, so a longer inspiratory time improves oxygenation, resulting in a higher mean air, as a result of a higher mean airway pressure. And theoretically, it redistributes gas from more compliant alveoli to less compliant alveoli. A lower peak airway pressure, so you have more time to that's available to deliver your set tidal volume. A shorter inspiratory time is going to give you less risk for gas trapping or intrinsic PEEP and less effect on the cardiovascular system. So different modes of mechanical ventilation, assist control, SIMV, pressure support, have different cycling mechanisms, whether it be volume or pressure, have major settings that I think all of us are used to looking at, but have additional settings that I challenge everyone to kind of think about and to look at as they go through. So let's make this a little interactive. So what cycles are pressure control or pressure support breath off? So in this patient, if flow cycles it off, then is that pressure control or pressure support? Flow cycles it off. That's pressure support, right? And if time cycles it off, it's pressure control. So pressure support, flow is going to determine when the breath is cycled off. Pressure control, you set the eye time. After you reach that level of, of inspiratory time, the breath turns off, right? What would cause the following change in the pressure waveform? So we talked about what this point is right here. We talked about what this point is right here. So what point is this right here? Plateau. What point is this? Peak. What would make the plateau pressure stay the same, but the peak pressure increase without touching the plateau pressure? Say it again. Obstruction. Good. Biting the tube. Good. Secretions in the tube. All of these things would result in that, right? So a foreign body aspiration, bronchospasm, compression of the airway, a kink DT tube or secretions, endotracheal tube cuff herniation. All of those things are important that you could just be standing outside of the room and saying, wow, it looks like the peak pressure just went up. What's the plateau pressure? The plateau pressure is the same. Okay, let me think about what the etiology of that could be. 
what would cause both the peak inspiratory pressure and the plateau pressure to increase? Good, decrease in compliance. Great, so that's, that, that could be from a number of different reasons, right? And then also, if you just adjust the tidal volume. If you increase the tidal volume, you're gonna get an increase in both your plateau pressure and your peak inspiratory pressure, right? So tidal volume increase or decreased pulmonary compliance from either pulmonary edema, ARDS, ascites, all the things that think about our respiratory system's compliance going down. All right, identify three ways to identify auto-peep by looking at a flow versus time scalar. So one I've given you, Doug, what's one way to identify auto-peep on a flow versus time scalar? Good, area under the curve. So I'm gonna show you an example of that. That's good, that's one way. What's another way? Helen, what's another way to see if the, based on the flow versus time scalar that a person has auto-peep? What happens to that expiratory flow limb? It does not come back to, it doesn't come back to zero before your next breath starts, right? And what about a third way? Standing outside of the room, you see it, the patient's flow, you look at their waveform, they look like they're agitated. You tried to give them six cc's per kilo of ideal body weight, so that would have been 300 cc's. So we'll get to that one. So this one is an example that Helen just said where your flow does not return to baseline. Then Doug said if you look at the area under the curve, he meant that if you look at the area under the curve for the inspiratory flow, and the area under the curve for the expiratory flow, if they don't match, then that's another example of it. And then the third is actually double triggering. Double triggering is a way that you can look at the ventilator and say, this person does not look like they're, they're asynchronous. B, it doesn't look like they're following our ARDSNET protocol of six cc's per kilo of ideal body weight, because if you set them at six cc's per kilo and they're doing this, then you just basically put them in the control arm of that study where they're getting 12 cc's per kilo of ideal body weight, right? So you get high lung volumes and pressures when you, when you double trigger, and this could, one, cause auto-peep, or two, be a sign that a patient has intrinsic or, or auto-peep. So as you, so one, it's dyssynchrony, right? You're, you're setting them to get a certain amount of, of volume or in, in whatever case you're using, whether it's pressure or volume modes, um, you're setting them to get a certain amount of volume, right? And so basically they're double triggering the ventilator because they're dyssynchronous and they're trying to take a breath in when the ventilator's turning it off, or in, 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 in one case, or as they try and exhale, right? The ventilator is saying, we're not gonna let you exhale anymore. We're gonna give you an, another breath. They get their, their, their breath and then they don't get as much as they want and then they take another breath on top of it. Sensitivity. You could change, so. And water. So, excellent. So what, what, so Mark Zubro, what is the problem here? This, this, is, this is basically triggering sensitivity, right? So this patient, if you look at their EKG, their EKG is gonna look like the same exact thing right here, and the sensitivity is set where they basically are, every heartbeat that they have is triggering the ventilator to deliver a breath because no person should be getting this many breaths um, unless they're super tachypnic, right? And so this is an example of auto-triggering that we don't want to see in our patients. The other thing is, is that you might see this kind of oscillation in the loops if there's water in the circuit and you want to make sure that your respiratory therapists are kind of cleaning that water out because that can also cause artifacts. So there are a lot of different things that we've gone over in the, in the last 50 minutes that can basically show you um, just by standing outside of the door, and I'm not advocating not examining your patient, but just by standing outside of the door that you can see that there's something wrong with this person's ventilator settings, that there's some changes that we can make, that we shouldn't rely just on the respiratory therapist to set them on whatever they think they need to be set on, that we should be involved in how they're managed on the mechanical ventilator in order to make sure we meet our goals of oxygenation, our goals of ventilation, our ARDSNET goals, as well as preventing ventilator-induced lung injury. So the last example I'll give you here is this one right here, and this was on our maryland.ccproject.com. This was a waveform that John Greenwood took a picture of. There's actually a nice video on there. What is happening here? So remember I told you that we never hardly look at these pressure volume loops or flow volume loops? Look at this flow volume loop here. 
what's wrong with this flow volume loop? Look at this on the expiratory limb here. This is a person with obstructive lung disease. And this person needed more bronchodilators. And if you give them more bronchodilators, you'll see that you can basically get this fl expiratory flow to look more curved and the patient gets much more comfortable. So just by looking at the loops, you can say, hey, maybe I need to change my bronchodilators from Q8 hours to Q2 or Q4, or I need to get them more bronchodilated. Um, when we think about how do you fix this, the first three answers should be, did I give them enough bronchodilators? But in addition, you can prolong the expiratory time so that even though their flow here is, it peaks, their expiratory flow peaks and then comes down, that they would have a long time to get the area under the curve here to be equal to the area under the curve on the inspiratory flow. You can change the eye time, you can increase flow. Ultimately, you might have to sedate a patient. And then you can add extrinsic PEEP. And I wanted to close with this diagram, basically talking about how we use extrinsic PEEP that we add in for some of our patients that are auto-peeping. Think about if a patient is auto-peeping and you can't help them with their bronchodilators and things like that that you've tried. You've tried to prolong their eye time. And they end up in this situation right here where you talk about the, the airway opening pressure and the alveolar pressure, and you talk about how much they need to generate from a pressure standpoint to get their breath to trigger. If this is normal right here, they have to basically go from zero to negative two and the breath triggers, right? But in someone who has auto peep, they're already at a higher peep level and they have to go from, say their auto peep is at eight, they have to go from eight to zero, and then from zero to negative two. So they have to generate 10 centimeters of water pressure to, uh, of negative inflection to be able to get their breath. And that in and of itself is gonna limit their ability to trigger the ventilator. And it'll increase their agitation. And this is something that we all need to be cognizant of because in this case, what you could do is you could change the PEEP to come closer to your intrinsic PEEP. So you add extrinsic PEEP to get closer to your intrinsic PEEP so that you can reduce the amount of work that a patient needs to do to trigger the ventilator. So this is a, a topic that, that I think um, as fellows and as faculty, we need to be a little bit more aware of because if we're gonna treat patients with auto PEEP, we need to think about all the things that we can do to avoid it. And then ultimately there will be the patient where you can avoid it. And at that point, maybe adding extra PEEP is the answer rather than doing some other stuff that we do um, at this center. So with that, I'm going to conclude. I appreciate your guys' attention. I'd be happy to answer any questions. Thank you, guys.